Welcome to the Modern Jewish Girl Podcast. I'm Jenna, lawyer by training, writer and teacher by choice. Originally from New York, I am a proud wife and mother living in the holy city of Jerusalem. Join me as we delve into the Holy Torah's teachings and apply them to our lives. I keep it short and sweet, but always deep. Welcome. Sorry, it's been so long since I posted. I don't generally like to go this long without doing a podcast, but it was a very special occasion where my parents, thank God, were in Israel visiting, so I had my hands full with them. But I'm excited to be back, and this episode is very close to my heart. I want to introduce my Torah teacher here in Israel, Rebetzin Yehudis Golshevsky. Yehudis, as she's lovingly called by her students, has been teaching Torah for over 25 years and has students all over the world. In my opinion, she's one of the most knowledgeable female Torah teachers of our generation. The breadth and depth of her Torah wisdom is truly amazing. I met Yehudas eight years ago. I had heard about a Breslov Rebetzin in Geula who gave amazing Torah classes for women. And when I went to Yehudas' home for that Sunday night Lakute Maharan class, I was hooked. Since then, her classes have evolved into a Torah school for women called Shaviti, in which she and other female teachers give Torah classes in person and on Zoom on a variety of Torah topics. In this episode, Yehudas and I are talking about the evolution of her teaching and her school Shaviti and why it adds something really special to the Jewish world. I also wanted listeners to get a taste of her Torah teachings, and she shares a beautiful piece of Torah around the first hour mark. Along the way throughout our conversation, Yehuda shares pearls of wisdom about what it means to live and learn as a Jewish woman. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy. Rabbits and Yehudas, thank you so much for being here. I'm extremely excited to speak with you. I'm very happy to be with you. Can you please tell us the story of how you became a Torah teacher and the evolution of your teaching up until Shaviti, which is your, your current Torah school? That's a, very, that's a pretty long history because <laughs> the, uh, the beginning of where it started was when I was 17 years old and I'm turning 50 this year so it's been a long, oh my gosh it's been a nice road um, I had no interest in being a Torah teacher it was the furthest thing that I would have considered I would never have it never would have entered my mind when I was 17 years old I met a Rav who came into New York from Israel who had really kind of otherworldly insight into people, which wouldn't be well. Amazing. And um, and through a very strange combination of of uh, causes, I I wound up with my father and my sister. We wound up visiting him where he was staying in Bar Park, and I walked into his you know the, the basement apartment that he was staying in for the his for his stay in in New York and. Um, and he looked at me and he said, you think you're going to be a doctor? Which was true. That was the plan. Wow. I was graduating from high school and I had been accepted to university. And I had like a whole, I had already been thinking for years about medicine. And, and um, he said, you think you're going to be a doctor? He didn't know me from anywhere. I'd never met him before. We had never spoken to him He just, he, he knew just you wanted to be a doctor. Yeah, I walked in and he looked at me and he said, you think you're going to be a doctor? He was laughing at me. I said, you're not going to be a doctor. You're going to teach Torah. No. And he said, if you don't teach Torah, you're going to be a very, very unhappy person. (gasps) What was interesting was at the time, I was not, I was so far away from Jewish observance, I can't even describe it. It was the most unlikely thing to say to somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Not only wasn't, it didn't suit my own purposes, but it also made no sense. Wow. It's not as though he wasn't aware that I wasn't observant at that time. Wow. He was. I kind I, I, and he said a, a lot of other things. We had a very long, very productive conversation. Um, and I'm not going to go into details, but in the end, I wound up uh, developing a close relationship. I came to Israel. Uh, I was frequent, a frequenter in his house. He answered all my questions for me, but I filed away the business about teaching Torah. I, mm. for, I kind of forgot about it. Mm. And my, um, my sister didn't forget. Because <laughs> <laughs> he said, you're going to have thousands of students. You're going to have... He, but I didn't, I, 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 that, I blew it off. I didn't. That's so crazy. I, I wasn't paying attention. Wow. And because I was very hyper-focused on being interested in medicine. And later when I got to university, I was interested in medicine and I was interested in environmental studies. And I had my own 
but I was also at that point already observant. Mm. You know, if you fast forward a few years, and I love to learn, mm. and everything that I learned, I was so, I was so excited by, and then I realized that I was playing this role, like at the university, like with my friends at college, of talking about spiritual things and every idea that I came across that I was sharing it. And so that was, but I, I didn't change my direction. Okay. Know? I still thought that I was, if not medicine, I was going to go into midwifery. I was doing my environmental studies stuff. So I was doing my environmental education. And then I guess when I was about 19, um, maybe a little later, about when I was almost 20, I realized that I had a choice in front of me that I was either going to have to devote myself to something that I, I had two things in front of me that I really loved, you know, like my, my university studies that I loved and my Torah studies that were picking up the pace mm. and I, you know, I was really loving them too. So mm. I remember being in my dorm room and thinking one day, like it was, you know, around Thanksgiving time, this time of year. And I, I thought I have to make a choice, you know, like I could either stay an interested lay person in everything having to do with Torah or I really have to throw myself into it. Mm. And that was when I made the decision. I, I, and I switched gears. I changed my major. I decided that I was going to go pursue much more intensive Torah study, which meant I left the university. I finished also my degree, but I left the university. I went someplace else to study. It was a total departure from what I had been planning. Wow. So you were able to sit down then and there and, and realize you wanted to throw yourself into it completely. It was like I saw myself at a crossroads. You know, when you're young, I was just turning 20 then. But I wasn't even 20 then. But I could see, like, you make decisions that, at that age, you make decisions that have an effect on the course of the rest of your life. I know, it's so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so I just remember having this epiphany, you know, sitting in my dorm room thinking... If, if, if what I love is to learn Torah and I love to share it, why am I going to spend my whole life with that being a sideline? Mm. Why shouldn't that be, you know, the, the, the core of yeah. what I'm doing? But it was, it was a very big departure for me. I wasn't considering that at all. Wow. And, I, and wow. I, had, I wasn't paying any attention to what that rabbi had said to me. It's not because I was sitting there saying, oh, he promised me I'm going to be. I filed that away. You had to come to it on your own. Yeah, it took me like another couple of years to figure it out. Wow. So I know I know because we've spoken a bit before that your first, I think your first job out of college was at Neve, teaching right. Torah at Neve. Well, not so, it was out of college and sent because I finished both right. at the same time. Like I, I compressed it and finished my degree and also two years in, in teacher training. Wow. So when I, on the cusp of finishing, I had to make some decisions about where I was going to go. And I really just wanted to go into adult education. I did not want to go teach grade school. I certainly wasn't going to teach grade school, even though I enjoyed, you know, I did student teaching in grade school, and I loved it with kids. And I did high school also. I, I taught 11th grade as a student teacher my second year, and that was also fun. But that's not why I was in it. Mm. I mean, I was in it because I wanted to touch souls, and I wanted to work with adult Jewish women. Right. So the natural choice was to go, where are all those souls going to learn? And anyway, I wanted to come back to Israel. Right. So I was in touch with, um, I was in touch with rabbi, a certain rabbi at Neve who I had had from years before I'd had a good relationship with. And he assured me that if I came back that they'd have a position for me. You know, not just doing madrichayim, which is like semi-administrative and counselor and whatever, like kind of being like an RA, but... <laughs> Basically, it's not my, that's not my cup of tea, but they, I, he actually reassured me that I'd have teaching hours and, you know, that I'd have my, uh, some, some money, but that I'd have room and board nice. in the dorms. And it was like, I was then, by then I was 22, almost 23, you know, and I, and I, um, I felt like my whole life was opening up in front of me. Everything that I really had wanted and had been kind of dreaming about was just falling into place. Wow. So, I came to Israel single, married my husband, met my husband, got married very soon after I came. Wow. I, I came beginning of September, I guess. And I was married. We were married um, end of December. Oh, my gosh. I didn't realize it was that quick. Yeah. I wow. A few weeks after I, I, got, well, I got in the second week of Elul, right? That's before Rosh Hashanah. 
and we met right after circus and wow. we had a fairly short engagement we didn't date long and we had we would have gotten married even before then <laughs> but my parents I had to wait until my mother had off from from teaching you know till they had winter break to that's get married. so funny wow <laughs> so that's hysterical and then you of course your husband's breast love so you became breast love Look, my huh? husband's story is also not so straightforward because it's not as though he was raised a chassid he was mm. raised in a in a uh, we'll call it like an American yeshivish litvish family, right? Mm. Like black hat. Um, he went to yeshiva his whole life, and his journey to how he became a Breslover was his. That's his own story. Mm. But by the time we met, he was well on the way. I mean, he had already been to Lund for Rosh Hashanah for three years or something. Wow! Stealth. He was a stealth Breslover. <laughs> he wore a short jacket. He didn't wear a round head. You know, he wore regular fedora but he had grown out his beard mm. he couldn't he couldn't bear to cut his beard anymore wow so he had grown out his beard and um but he was learning in near you know he was learning in a standard yeshiva but he wasn't so standard because he was uh, going to learn with his uncle who was uh, uh like a you know t- who taught in the breast of the yeshiva in the old city um he used to go and learn with him there also every day so cool so yeah, they had been chavrusas for years ever since he came to Israel. So, wow. so he was also like one, you know, a foot in. He had different feet in different worlds. Yeah, you guys are very unique in I this mean, way. I, you know, Rabbi Nachman said, I don't want to talk too much about Breslov necessarily, you know, to focus on that. But he, he Rabbi Nachman Breslov said something interesting. He said, I want my my thing to spread among the what he called the Litvish Herzer, the the. Lithuanian hearts. Mm. Why? Not so much because he was like an evangelist, you know, that's not the, <laughs> but because he felt like the people who have a solid basis in learning and in and in serving Hashem, like they're really earnest, because that was something that was very typical of Lithuanian Jewry was this kind of straight, straight earnestness and yes. Hashem and serving God. So, um, so, Chasidus is like a great thing to put to to bring to that. Yes. As opposed to, um, you know, not not to be lacking that. So right, my husband and I were a good match. In in I would say we were a good match. Period. But certainly in our very broad love of learning and not being closed off only in one, you know, only in one corner of of Torah study or Jewish life or something like that. We both, you know, are yeah, similar in that. Yes, and. I know that's one of the things that drew, drew me to learn with you is that you you your breadth and depth of of Torah knowledge is, is pretty unbelievable. Absolutely. <laughs> so no, but I started at Mive and then I got married and after I got married, even before I got married, I was I would teach hours here and there. You know, mm. like they gave me hours at the diaspora yeshiva, then had a women's program, then Asia Torah had me come in to do certain things, and you know, and uh, and I was teaching in the neighborhood and. I was just teaching wherever I could put hours together. And I had a lot of private students. I was tutoring. Mm. And, you know, and I was in the years of also having and raising kids. Right. So it took a few years, but the the most convenient thing for me, I mean, and I was teaching also, I continued at Mivay for a while. But I never wound up being the, um, like a regular, uh, I don't know how to put it exactly. Like a nine to fiver. Right. I was never a nine to fiver teacher or whatever. You're a freelance twelver. teacher. I was always freelance mm. because it gave me a lot more freedom. Right. And it provided a lot less security. Obviously. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's the <flip> side. <laughs> it gave a lot less security, but I got to do what I wanted. You know. You got and to got pick to what always, you wanted to teach. Not only did I pick what I wanted to teach, but one of the things that happened, which wasn't really intentional, was. I never stopped learning new. Mm. I, I never stopped learning this forum because I had my same students wanted to stay with me. Like if you're teaching in a school, then you stay in one room and students move through your room, you know, and yes. then they move on to someplace else. So you st- you keep teaching what you're teaching, and and there's this flow of new nefashos, right, of new souls. I remember asking Robertson Helen once about this. I said, um, you know, I tr- explain to me the process of the chidush. Like we're you're teaching, let's say, the same class for thirty years. So where is your sense of it being of its freshness? It's right. Where is it coming from? Is it coming from seeing new insights into the so she into the work itself? She said the chidush is with the students, right? That the newness, the freshness comes from interacting with your students over the material. The right. Material doesn't change. Right. So 
I, I, we were driving on the way to a um, Pei Shivakor, I remember, and I, I said, I can see that that's true, but that hasn't, like, that hasn't been the way that Hashem led me. Right. I just kept on switching it up. I was always teaching new things, and then the students, I have students that are with me, the same students for 20-something years. Wow. Because we just... You just, together. you just keep growing together. You've been forced to grow with your students. And the students also go through different periods. It's very interesting. Like, I'll have students when they're single, right? Go back 20 years. They were single. And then they got married, and then they had you know, their busy years of raising little kids. Right. They couldn't come to classes. You know, mm. they stopped coming. And then, lo and behold, like 15 years down the line, I hear from them again. They start showing up. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's um, I, I, sometimes I joke, it's like cradle, cradle to grave service. <laughs> Which is, I mean that literally because I also, for all my students for years, until very recently, I went to their births. Wow. You know, made for them their Sheva Brachas. It's it's a long relationship. That's very, very special. So, okay, so you're you're doing freelance teaching and then... For years. For years. But I was also doing other work. Right, writing. Teaching was a labor of love. I was Um, writing and I was translating. I was doing editing work. Basically, I was doing anything I could do that fit within my purview, that made money, that allowed me to stay home and raise the children. Nice. So I was very adamant that I didn't want to send anybody out earlier, you know, here in Israel. If you don't send out when you're three, you're, you're like excommunicated, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've, get, you've deprived them of their ability to get into a school, you know, for the rest of their life. Oh my gosh. So, which wasn't my intention, but at least to not send them out before they're three. Right. You know? So, right. so the, the years I, I was expecting right after I got married. So it was the most wonderful thing. Yeah. I, I was able to tutor. So in the afternoons, I had students who would come. And if my kids were around, they were around. And um, I wrote when they were sleeping. I did my writing and editing work or at night, you know. And, and my husband always learned at night. So he, when he came home, like during those early years, I had all those friends who would say, oh, bedtime is the hardest, it's, the, it's like the most difficult time to get all the kids into bed, like supper to, supper time, you know, pre-supper time into post-bedtime. And I had a totally different life, because my husband would come home from his second Seder, I, will, I would have given the kids supper, bathed them, and then he took all the kids to bed. Oh. And I left to teach. Wow. So I was a young married woman who was teaching four nights a week. I was giving shurim all over the place. And I was able to do it because my husband also had a, his schedule was, you know, he would learn, he would learn all through the night and in the morning into the afternoon, but his er, first part of the night, he slept. Wow. So I just dumped everything. <laughs> <laughs> I just dumped him to bed. <laughs> Bye. Wow. And was, I, you know, it was, what can I say? It's not for everybody. Okay. So how, so you're teaching, when and how did the idea for Shaviti to open up your own Torah school, when did it really start and how did it come about? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I the truth is, the um, the beginning of it was about two years before we opened, which is going back now. We're in our fourth year, okay. So it's going back six years. Uh, I was teaching a, my class here Sunday night. I used to come. Yeah, so the Sunday night class, I was teaching, and I have a few students, a bunch of students who are themselves in education, and. Um, as well as true, or not as well as true, like whether they had a very rich education Jewishly when they were growing up or whether they only acquired it later, as educators, they're very good, but there's a lot that's missing. Educators, um, I, I'm, this is my feeling about it. I feel that, especially as time goes on, educators need a lot more than they used to need. Mm. And it doesn't, even, it doesn't really so, matter, so much matter now, I don't think, what age group you're teaching even. But, so I have students who are in adult ed, or in outreach, let's say. And over the years, a lot of them have expressed to me a kind of frustration with, I wish when I had been young enough, I had had like the kind of training that you got in Yavna, because I was in Cleveland for two years, where I really got such a strong foundation. Mm. And, um, you know, how, how do I make up? How do I fill in my gaps? So for mm. any number of educators over the years, women, I've given list of like tell me what your education has been like i'll tell you what i think you need to learn in order to fill in those gaps mm. so that you're you know you're, gonna, you're not going to be at a loss in your work but it's not so easy to um it's not so easy to acquire all of that there's, there, you need a lot so um i had a student i have she's still a student 
I have a student who, in education, who said, oh, if only, if only you would make up a program, like a two-year program, you know, I, I would do it, and I would help you with it, and I, and I, I, I when she said it, you know, you have to be listening out for the hashgacha, for, for the providence, you know, that Hashem is also speaking to you. Yes. In the words of other people. And I heard, I, I, in my right ear, I always get sometimes, I don't want to say always, sometimes I get like a little voice in my right ear, like, listen up, pay attention. Wow. So when she said that, I said, okay. Now, I knew she's not going to do anything about it. No, I knew she's not going to because she's early in her career. Right. And she's ma- she's newly married and she's got pregnant and whatever. Right, she's not going She's not going on. She's not going to do this. But she said it and right away it resonated with me. I have to sit down and start building a curriculum. Mm. So six years ago, I sat down and I built a curriculum for what I thought would be needed. And also a kind of overall... If I was going to build um, a women's learning program that would also accommodate community learning, mm. not only for educators, what would that look like? So okay. I, I put a lot of thought and energy into it because you never know where the where the emissary is coming from. You right. Know? But you have to be ready. Right. If Hashem is sending you somebody, you have to be ready for that. So, but about a year some odd later, um, I was approached by an institution, a Torah institution here in Yerushalayim. And they asked me would I do consultancy for them to build a women's program. Mm. And also for educators. And I said, I mean, just kind of compressing events. I said, yeah, I actually have it all. <laughs> Here it is. Here it is. <laughs> I mean, I tweak it a little bit, but basically it's done. And, um, and so they hired me to build a program. And I was given really free reign, I have to say. Amazing. So I had three years under their wing where I pretty much had free reign to do whatever I wanted. But what happened was we had a year and a half prior to COVID. And year one, we had a whole bunch of women who were really on fire also to go into education. It was like a really exciting year one. And year two, a lot of that cohort had moved on and got jobs and did all kinds of good stuff. And so we were back into focusing more on community education. But then halfway through the year, COVID broke. So... One of the things that was great was that when we started the program, it wasn't only an on, you know, in-person program. Right. We knew we were going to have students from abroad. And so we were recording everything and distributing recordings online. Like, everything was really, really well set up. We just weren't doing concurrent learning. Right. We were doing recorded sessions and then distribution. Right. So when we had to make a transition, we did Right, as COVID broke and we were already set up. So we didn't switch to Zoom immediately because we had some quirks to work out. I think we were using Facebook Live for a little bit mm-hmm. right at the beginning, pre-Pesach. We used Facebook Live. By the time Pesach was over, we were already fully operational on Zoom. Wow. With the full program. So, and, and that whole first months, those whole first months of COVID, we stopped charging tuition. because we I remember like, that. We felt like... Uh, like the women needed the support, you know. Everyone was stuck at home and and going out of their minds <laughs> and worried and, yeah. and and overrun with their children <laughs> and and they needed support. And yeah. what's the better support than Torah? So so we opened the doors and said, even though we were we always had a scholarship program, but we just opened it up and said we're not taking money now. That was amazing. Well, it was really it was really from heaven because. When I ha- we had a fundraiser right before right before I and remember. like literally on the cusp of COVID we had run that fundraiser so we had money in the bank we could be operational with that and just assume that if anybody wanted to help us with donations you know we'd be happy to receive them but we wanted to make good use of the funds wow it's so cool yeah it was it was the timing on that was totally divine so divine and I, I know personally I remember when the school was first starting that I was so excited because I was living in Los Angeles and I was able to do courses online it was such a game changer because not everyone can make it to Israel to learn you know so it's so unbelievable that anyone can can tune in and, and do the learning yeah our whatever our time zones are from Los Angeles to Sydney <laughs> but but east it's not so west fun. right so funny <laughs> So what's the mission of Shaviti? I guess, and I mean, you kind of spoke about this, but what, how do you view the void that it's filling in, in the Jewish world or Jewish education world? Well, okay, we have. First of all, I have. You always have to be careful when you're talking about voids, 
to not diss anybody That's else, true. right? <laughs> okay, so what are you adding, I guess? Okay, so I, because, because every single tour institution ha- is making wonderful contributions. That's true. So I don't want to be focused on, you know, we're doing something and nobody... I don't like to do that. Okay. I, I just feel like there's a kind of synthesis that is going on with us that is uh, unusual. I don't know if it's so much existing. It's certainly not in the form that it's in with us. Right. And, um, of, of course, every place has its own, right? It's, it's own shvil, its own shar, its own gate, its own path. Right. Um, so I, I think it has to do with my own training and the course of my teaching over the years. I am a text person. I'm a, I am deeply, deeply connected with the holiness and the potential that exists within the square letters, black on white, that are in the text. And like that they're gateways to infinity. Mm. They're the gateway, right? In, yes. Right? In, in la kodesh baruch hu ela, right? The place where you find Hashem in the world is like inside of those appears to be like these square boxes, right? Yeah. That are so black and white, but but um, they're gateways to infinity. Mm. So I'm a lover of, of our textual tradition and, and the potential that it offers us. And I feel that women, um, there is a lot available for women in terms of learning, but uh, text, textual learning that is deeply spiritual and that's that's deeply, uh, that's connected to our panemiastic sources, our more esoteric side of the tradition, that's something that is very hard to find. Yes. And it's one thing, okay, so in the world of, let's say in the world of Chabad, there's a lot of, let's say, Hasidus is studied, yes? Yes. So there's a big emphasis there. So it's not as though it's ignored in the Jewish world. It's available, but it's very defined in terms of what's available to you. Right. And the program that we set up is much more broad in the kinds of sources that we avail ourselves of. And, you know, if I, I, I want, there's no reason why Jewish women should not be, should not be um, excited about, about opening the sperm, about f- finding themselves and their experience and, and the tools that they need for their lives inside of the text. Also. Yes, yes. But specifically through women teachers. I'm very committed to this. Yes. I got that from Yavne, from where I studied in Cleveland. The, the, we did have male teachers, but not that many. And the focus was on women teaching women. And I'm, I'm very committed to this. I think that it's, in order for women to be excellent teachers of women, they also have to be themselves very, very well educated. Yes. And very broad and very, uh, you know, aside from the training, also very experienced in the broad and great breadth of Svarim. So we also, in the choice of who we have teaching for us, I'm, I'm trying very much to, um, you know, to bring in teachers that answer that need. Wow. And they're not easy to find. Wow. They're not that easy to find because with most teachers, you know, what, is it, what happens with most teachers? They develop their wheelhouse. Right. And then you students move through their right house. exactly. But I, I want teachers who, who, who can grow and evolve with their students, and who have, and who have a broad enough basis that stuff that comes up in class that they should be able to answer it. Amazing. You know? So. So I try to give my students what I got myself. You know, I, it, it's, I, I want the my. Dream dream, you know? Yeah, yeah. What's your dream <laughs> there's dream? Like, there's, there's layers <laughs> and layers. I'm do- totally doing my dream. Don't think I'm not. I absolutely am. But there's a lot more that could be done, you know? I want, yeah, and I, I want, I'm going to get to that because I want to see kind of your vision going forward. But I have to ask you, the name Shaviti, how did you decide upon this name? What does it mean? Where does it come from? So we, we had to come up with a name for the program. While we were under the auspices, you know, we were built, developing it under the auspices of another institution. So the women's program needed a, a name. And I was sitting in, that used to be my office over there, pointing. And <laughs> I was sitting in there, and I was racking my brains. I'm like, what is it, you know? Coming up with a name is not so easy. No. What is it? So what are we trying to do exactly? Right? Your name has to express what it is that you're trying to do. So um, 
In the 16th chapter of Tehillim, we have a phrase, it's part of the Shiviti Hashem Tamid. So Shiviti is, um, I place Hashem before me always, but Shiviti is kind of a non, it's not so easy to translate, because it's not Shiviti with a vet, which means to place, like putting something down or making it settle. But it's with a vav, which is from the language of Shave. It means to be uh, equal like two sides of an equation are equal, right? Mm. So, Shiviti Hashem gives us this image, you know, it's King David's words of to be in a state of mind where Hashem is opposite, or right across from me in a state of face-to-face -face relationship. We're in a face-to-face -face relationship. Wow. That's what it expresses. So, Shiviti Hashem Um I said Shiviti, but actually... I came upon the, I came upon the, what brought me to it was I, I was meditating on what's, you know, what are we doing? And I looked up and I was looking across Sfarim. You know, it's all, it's all bookshelves in the office. Right. Like every room in your house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking and I'm looking because I'm thinking, like, it's the books. I have to see the ads are in the books. And I was looking at spines of the books. And I think that's when it came to me, but I don't know if I picked it off of the spine of a book or if it just floated into my head, if you're asking me wow. the exact process. <laughs> that's so yeah, cool. I love like that. that. I love it. I know personally, just learning with Shaviti, that it's a very diverse group of women from all backgrounds. You know, people who grew up observing, people who did not, and all different, diff ages. different ages. There's a big age range there. Yeah. Um, in our first year, we were like from 20, from the age of 21 or 22 until 70, about 70. Wow. That's so cool. It was great. Yeah. So, so I guess my and question... we were in person. We that, were around the table. That's, a, oh, that's the best. Yeah, it was good. What are the characteristics that this diverse group of students share? I would say an open-minded search to come closer to God. For it's sure. It's a sincere pursuit. They are sincere pursuers. Truth seekers. Yeah, I think so. For sure. I think that's where it's I think that's what it's coming from. And um, that's the that's the thread that yes. puts everybody together. A hundred percent. And you should see our you know, our WhatsApp Yeah, chat. I love the WhatsApp chat. <laughs> from the sublime to the ridiculous, right? Right. It's great. Yes. I love it. And it's been going strong, can I hear for for four years. It's great. And there's a certain level of simcha of joy that also is in the group that's yeah. very special. Yeah. yeah for sure. It's a, it's a good sense of humor. Good sense of humor, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that probably also yeah. has a lot of your influence as well. But I don't know. I mean, look, life is, life, is ser life is serious business, but you can't take yourself too seriously. Exactly. Exactly. So I really wanted to ask, because we've spoken a bit before, and, you know, Today, so many people are, I think, struggling. I feel like more and more people are going to therapy and are looking for tools of just how to live. And, you know, they want more, people want more spirituality, more meaning. And I've heard you say in the past that these are found inside our traditional texts. Can you elaborate on this? Because I think so much of what I've gained from these classes is just like tools for living, like wisdom and, and, ways to connect with Hashem and myself and others like in such a deeper way. So I was hoping you could maybe elaborate on that. I think that a lot of the stuff that people are looking for in general, aside from specific tools to be found in Torah and what's available and, you know, what I call that which is hiding in plain sight in our tradition. There's a lot that's hiding in plain sight. And I want to give you two different frameworks to see it in. Okay. Like something that we did in Shibiti, which I think you were in that class. And then... Um, Stuff that I do outside of Shibiti with, as, as professional development for other educators. So okay. there's different um, ways to examine it. But aside from that, let's think about how isolated people are and how mm. lacking people are in a sufficient support network to be able to um, strengthen themselves. Yeah. And how for all of the connection that the virtual social network provides for people... It's actually like a pretty, very often kind of soul deadening. It's not really the same as having, um, you know, genuine supportive relationships. It's not so simple. Right. It can be very deceptive. And that a lot of what people seek in their therapy, their coaching, their 
courses, their retreats, is a sense of like like-minded chevre to be in the company of other people who are open about their struggles and can share yes. uh, from their own experience and who it, to be to be among honest, sincere um, humans on yes. the journey. Right? Yes, and how important it is. So one of the things that I was looking forward to when when beginning the program wasn't just a kind of academic program. But strengthening the ties of community. Yes. COVID really put a, put a monkey wrench in it in a certain way. Right. Because we had to give up interpersonal, re, inter, you know, we had to do the, we had to give up the in-person interaction a bit. Right. Although we're, you know, we've had <laughs> briefly periods where we were able to pick it up again and we're going to try again after Hanukkah. But mm-hmm. we're going to go back to having, I think, a day of classes in my house every week. Yay. In one hours. Amazing. Um... We want to get back to more in-person stuff, but but uh, COVID. But and again, maybe COVID didn't put a monkey wrench in it. Because what about our students who are in Sydney or who are, you know, in wherever they are, and they don't have that many uh, options available for finding the kind of clever that they would really feel good with in the learning environment and being able to share. We've had a lot of deep friendships. And, and relationships that have come out from this virtual online learning, our WhatsApp chat, our Zoom classes. We have, you know, I make jokes, Shiviti on the road. Like we have, <laughs> when, when women go to different cities, like, oh, are there any friends, you know, where can I pop in? And That's they so send cool. pictures, they, put, they post pictures up on the WhatsApp chat. I'm like, ah, oh, it's so fun for all of us to see how the, the real world connections that are there, you know, mm. that they're, they're genuine. Yeah. Because they feel it, very yeah. sisterly. Yes. I was going to say, it's like soul sisters. It's like yeah. people who are on a similar path in life and trying to, like you said, achieve the same thing. Well, and one of the things for me that's important is, um, is that varying levels, I don't really like to call it levels, very, varying worlds of observance and commitment to Torah observance and um, ages and stages and life experience, like, all of that stuff is so, it's it's really external. Yes. It's very external. And we're connecting with each other in a way that's more essential. It transcends all of that. Yeah. And I and that, I think, is a meta message. It's a meta learning. Mm. You know what I mean? I'm, yes. I'm into the meta message of classes also. I, I remember I had, for years, I had somebody who would pop in occasionally to classes, whether I was teaching in my house or in other neighborhoods. And she's, she's not well. She suffers from mental illness. And whenever she would show up, for the most part, it was like always the drama. There's always some drama. And she always would sit right next to me, Kosa. And I remember um, I had a student who came, who came to me after a class once, and she said, so-and-so was very disruptive. How come you... Like her legs get swollen, so I got out of my chair and I, I picked her legs up and put them on a chair, you know, so she would have them elevated. Let's say that happened, you know, once. So she, she said she was very uh, um, disruptive. Maybe you should have had someone else, you know, deal with her. So I said, you're not getting the point. Like, <laughs> I don't, I, I, I just, I, I just tried to be gentle with her. I said, listen. There's what I was teaching, right? Which is important. We're learning in the Sefer, we're learning Hasidus, we're learning Parsha, whatever we're learning. And then there's like a suffering person who's sitting in front of me and needs her feet picked up so that she's in less pain. And, and even if it doesn't help her pain, how important it is for her emotionally that the person who's teaching actually pays attention to her and tries to alleviate her pain, even if I can't. Wow. Right? I said, so it's worth the price of admission for you to be part of that, <laughs> even if you wound up learning less inside the Sefer, because clearly, the main point is in the doing, not the learning about it. Yes. So we have to be very thankful that so-and-so shows up, so that <laughs> instead of just keeping our noses in books, we're actually doing something so right? important wow so I, I it was a little weird for me to have to spell it out because i thought it's like a fairly obvious thing wow no but in meta teaching is the, the meta message right let's go back to it yes i don't have to articulate isn't this awesome that we're all so different and 
I don't have to articulate that. That no. just is. Right. And, and and what's accomplished in a on I mean, as an educator, there's always the obvious educational goal of every class, and then there's the not obvious educational goal of every class. Mm. So that's so cool. Right. <laughs> so just the process, right? You know, like right. Just the act of having this, having the school, and conducting it the way you're conducting it, and and that in itself is very powerful in sending certain messages. Right. Like even that we set up when we were when we do in person classes, we're in the round around the table. Mm. We're not in rows. Right. I love that. I always like circle learning better. It's not, but there's something, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be articulated. The idea is that everybody's got a place at the table and that there's, I even prefer a full round if it's possible because I don't like there should be, I don't like that there should be a head of a table and a bottom of a table. So when we were in the old building in Nakhlaot, um, I specifically sat on the side of the table, generally speaking, and not at the head of the table. Right. But not only because of the layout of the camera. There was no head. Right. It was a square. Right. There was no head. That's great. That's so cool. It's very important. And I know for me personally, we had we had discussed this how this summary when you were teaching the Rebbe Nachman story of the sophisticated and the simpleton, just even in there, just how much practical tools for life. I mean, so many gems of life wisdom. Oh, that 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 we're above board about that yes. story. Right. Some classes are really focused on articulating the tools yes some of them are not right right Right. some of them it's just about also i i I feel like there's something very powerful about women having the text in front of them and that they should like when i teach for example if i teach um i'm teaching now a class on agarita right right so it's not it's agarita in gemara shabbos and it's not a Talmud class per se, but it actually more or less is. You know, it is, except that I'm picking and choosing what I'm doing in the tractate. So, uh, so that it's stuff that's more of, um, it's of moral lessons and, you know, or interesting anecdotes about the sages. So I'm staying in the realm of um, what we call narrative material as opposed to halakhic material. Although there's crossover. Right. So, so I, I feel like Whenever I have an opportunity to fill in the gaps for these women for their education, like if it's if there's a quote in a book about from the Tosefta, so most women learn to elide over their ignorance. I hate to say it, when it comes to Torah subjects, most women are in the habit without it's unconscious of eliding over their ignorance. They're used to hearing so many terms once you're in deeper texts that are unfamiliar to them, that they don't stop at every one and say, "What is that exactly?" Mm. And I try to untangle that mm. because they should know. Yeah, hundred percent. They it's should in, know. Yeah, I think it's intimidating too. At least for someone like me, I didn't grow up with a formal Jewish education. So when I'm coming into a class where there there are maybe other students who did have that education, I'm not. I feel bad stopping every two minutes <laughs> to ask for a translation. You know, yeah. sometimes it's not a simple translation doesn't suffice. Like to explain what are the tosefta. It, it takes a minute or two, fine, but but once it's been conveyed, so hopefully it gets in there and, and it becomes part of the storehouse of knowledge. Not because, it, again, it's something to be very clear about. Not because I feel that women have to know everything that traditionally men know. I don't think that, I'm, I'm not a big believer in that. Right. But I do feel that that our tradition is so profound and so powerful and so rich and so beautiful and so endless, you know? that like it's a pleasure to be a part of it it's yeah. such a pleasure and a delight to know what is this and not to be feeling always at a loss around it yes yes so and that's true for women who went to base yakov or went to day school you know it's not only about whether you were raised with a traditional education or not right because there's there's just too much to know i know it's so true <laughs> and it's okay like we're all and we're all just learning we're all just right we're all just being together in the learning. Right. And, and with pleasure and with joy and with connection to each other, to ourselves, to Hashem. That's the purpose. Yes. It's amazing. I got it out. You're teaching, you know, from Lakute Maran. Then you have Derek Hashem. There's Chumish. There's, I mean, there's really like Parsha. There's everything. Halacha. I would, I would like there to be. See, we have, um, our program is very different from other programs because other programs this is a difference 
Most other programs are fixed, meaning you're in for a program. Right. And that means that the institution has come up with a certain spectrum of classes that are available to you. And if you're in the program, you're taking whatever classes. Maybe there are electives here or there, but basically, you know, you may have some choice. But basically, the program is a fixed program. Right. We don't run that way. Right. It's on, it's on individual, every class is individually registered for. Right. And that's also very, so as an institution, it allows us to be nimble. Yes. Um, and on the other hand, it's very vulnerable. Like yes. There, there are vulnerabilities and there are advantages in, in setting up that way. Yes. Because we get to see right away what people are not into, what right. the women are not excited about. On the other hand, we don't have the control over the program in the same way to say, like, take your medicine kind of thing. Like, <laughs> right. You know, or take your vitamins. Right. Like, take take your vitamins. Like, yeah. You need this. Right. So you're going to get it. Right. And, um, and, okay, so you've got the, like, you've got the dessert stuff that you like, but you're going to have, i got to make sure that you get these things. I don't do that. Right. And one of the reasons why is because um, I feel that we need to provide that which cannot be provided other places. Mm. Or that is not being provided in other places. I don't want to say cannot, but that isn't currently right. being provided. So a lot of what I would love to teach, we leave it to other institutions to teach, which means that we also sacrifice students, mm. which isn't ideal. Mm. We don't have a multi-tiered program, for example. Right. Which means that we can't accommodate, at this point in time, we don't accommodate um, women who are real beginners. Right. And that's a shame. Right. Because we could. Right. And we have the staff who could do it, and I could bring in more staff. But it's a, it's a question of financing. Right. Is Rosh Hashem over time? Maybe. maybe. It's also a choice. Right. Like, um, meaning every institution has to... Well, I don't want to say, again, not to generalize. Institutions in general do need to figure out what's their... Their focus. Focus. Uh, if an institution gets big enough that it can stratify out indefinitely, you know, like... I'm not going to name particular institutions, but there are such institutions that are big enough and have enough. But it, that's also, it, it kind of creates an edifice that's very hard to, um, to maneuver when things change. Right. So a lot of bigger programs, very well-established programs, wound up suffering in ways that we didn't at the beginning of COVID. Right. Because um, we were already set up to make quick changes to... And, and to be, I guess, more portable. You know? And very flexible. Yeah. So at the end of every year, and sometimes even more frequently than that, we do a survey of students to find out what worked. But we keep our data. You know, we're careful right. about the data. Right. To see what's registration like. Did it? Um, did participation diminish? It's very interesting the kinds of information that's available. Like if we have students who are participating live, we see that from Zoom. Right. And if we have students who are picking up the recordings afterwards, so we get to see that via YouTube. Exactly. Right? So we get to find out who, how many people are really making use of the registration. Because we also have a lot of students on scholarship. Right. Right. Okay, so Go in ahead. terms of the tools, so let's say, uh, or the courses that are offered or whatever. Yeah. Um, I would, if I had my... You know, if I was building a program for women who wanted to go into education, then I would force them to do that. <laughs> right. Of course. You know, yeah. they wouldn't, like, they would have, to, like, I ha like, I haven't taught my history course. I know, I love your history I course. I haven't taught the history course since year one. And that course should have been not, well, it was twice a week, but it was the a full year. The history course could be for beginners. The history course is a lot of reading. Oh. There's a lot of readings. And it could be, it could be for beginners. It could true. be. Yeah. So, but it's still, it's a commitment. Right. To really get what you need to get out of that course, you have to be really committed. Mm -hmm. um, the, there's, a, there are a lot of things. So we're not, we're not situated to accommodate, at least for textual study. Right. We have some classes that are not so focused in text. They're all rooted in text. Right. But then more lecture. Right. And, um, and that can be okay for someone who's, uh, you know, not a beginner per se, but, right. you know, more intermediate. Yeah. But, but the, the text is, um, you have to already be, you have to already be pretty well situated to be able to follow, I think. I agree. 
I agree. What What's your favorite course? Do you have a favorite course that you like to teach? No. You love everything. <laughs> I love them all. And it's so good. And and every and it, what's fun is that I don't even care. If it, I mean, I don't want to say I don't care, but if uh, if students decide if they say, oh, next term we want to learn X, and I've never taught it before, I don't care. It's amazing. Like, yalla. That's <laughs> so cool. something new. That's so cool. So it keeps me on my toes. I get to see stuff that I've never seen before. Even if I'm teaching something that I've taught before, I always um, am approaching it in a new way. Like yeah, because also you, you see it through fresh eyes too. As well, I, cha- I change up my commentaries. Mm. You know? Yeah. I, I, like to, I like to switch it up. So if I've been through a certain book so with X, Y, Z... So next time I'm going to do something else, you know, I, right. I want to, I want to see it in a new way. And, uh, how is the, your, the fact that you are breast love, does that influence, how much of an influence would you say that that has on the school? I think the places where it finds its greatest influence, first, it can't help but have an influence. Right, of course. Because it informs me. Right. But also my years not as a breast lover inform who I am and how I do things. So I have, I, I have, um. Someone said to me, "Oh, yeah, I had a, I had an old student. We were we were students together in Sen, and she she got in touch with me, and she she had been um, driving someplace where she had taught a class. Someone came over to her, and she's like, you remind me of Yehuda Skolshevsky, and um, and we're so different from each other, and I haven't seen her in a million years, but but it's the it's this Yadne thing mm. where we went to school. Your training." Yeah, uh, a kind of approach to the teaching, which is coming from the place where we were educated. Right. So those who have eyes to see it can see that. Right. And that's definitely has nothing to do with breast love. I mean, right. It's completely not. That's tells. Right. So I, um, you know, we're all made up of, we bring to it what we have of ourselves. Exactly. But um, in actual, in, in terms of choices, I make sure to teach one class, at least, let's say one class a term, that is rooted in Rabbi Nachman's teachings. Nice. So this uh, this term and also continuing next term, we're learning Rabbi Nachman's writings, Likutei Moran, and we're focused on the subject of private prayer of these Bodhidhus. Yes. And that, because that's what everybody wanted. I'm like, okay, fine. That's yeah. what we'll do. And so we're going to continue that into the next term because there's so much in Likutei Moran and Sikhot Aran um, that focuses on this and helps. Why, why are we? But let's think about Shiviti. Yeah. Right? Why are we doing that? Yeah. And why do I want to invest that much energy in it? Right. Because let's say I have a group of women. Why are they taking the class? They're into Rabbi Nachman's teachings, but more, they want to focus on teachings regarding the practice of making a, a commitment to personal prayer in your own words every day, talking to Hashem. Yes. So in order to stay on track with that and to stay focused and to keep on developing it and to keep adding, you know, like you need to add fuel to the fire. You right. have to feed the fire. So, so to have a class on it, hopefully is feeding into their Hispodidus practice. Yes. And at the end of every class I always say the same thing. You know, that it shouldn't it should be brought down into 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 practice. Yes. And um, to stay focused on the practice of it because the learning needs to translate into reality. Yeah. Right? One of the big one of the big things I've learned from you through Rabbi Nachman is this idea of um, turning Torah into tefillah, turning Torah into prayer, and how you shouldn't just walk away from a class. And you know, you should channel it into a prayer that you should be able to incorporate what you've learned into your life in, in a real way. So that for me is very life changing. You know, and also spirit of the law is another place that. Oh yeah. This term, not you right. Know, for years, I was focused mainly on Likutei Lachot of Rubnasan's teachings. Right. And this spirit of the law, I've been focusing now this time around. I'm doing it totally differently, and I'm using the Makor Chaim, Chaim of Aram Tzava, who's like a totally different source and everything. Because uh, for because I have to bear in mind, it's not only about me. It's also about students who've maybe heard these ideas before. Right. I want to give them something new that they haven't heard before. So cool. Which means the new students don't get to hear the old stuff, so it's a little hard, but I try and... Maybe you know, one day there'll be an archive where people can uh, buy like old classes. We ha- we try to. That's a whole administrative um, job of right. through and of course. packaging. Right. Year one classes were packaged up. Those were amazing classes. Yeah, they were really good classes. The, but Zoom, I think that... The stuff that's done on Zoom is so much easier because right. especially when we're using text and it's brought right up on the screen, everything is really in one place. 
as opposed to the first year we had the video just of the teacher speaking and right we had this material separate it would get a little confusing right it's harder to backtrack with that for sure but so i guess this is a good time to ask how you kind of view shaviti evolving going forward your your big vision that you alluded to before you know things that you would like to see happen well big visions are i i feel are um built incrementally so we have really we need to reach more people i mean that's like next stage is you know, from here on, we really need to get the word out. There's so much good learning going on, and I think that it, just a lot of people don't know about it. We don't advertise. We're not right. doing promotion. It's all word of mouth. Can I know her? We have over 100 students. Like Wow, for sure. Yeah. Like, we range between 100 and 130 students in any given term. That's great. Yeah, Baruch Hashem. For no, for no marketing. No marketing. Right. Yeah. But um, it should expand. 100%. And so that's one thing but that's just lateral you know like expanding that's a horizontal expansion right basically but um the next new introduction is we're starting a kala teachers program wow not for kalas but for kala educators right yeah so the difference again why are we doing it there's so many different programs but we don't have a program I haven't yet found a program that incorporates the kinds of teachings of Pneumius. See, let's say over the years, my students. So if I taught them for in preparation for their wedding, which I have, so um, they have to learn their halachas. But all of these wonderfully spiritual women, right, they want to understand a little bit more about the spiritual underpinnings of what they're doing. Right. And there is a lot on it. You took Spirit of the Law on Women's Mitzvahs? I believe so, yes. Okay, so we there, there we did a certain amount. Yes. And went into certain depth. Yes. Um, but there's so much more. So, so much more. So college teachers should have this knowledge available to them. Why? Not, it doesn't have to be standard for them to give to their students, because not every student is looking for it, you know? Right. But they should have much greater depth available to them if they have students who want to know. A hundred percent. And it totally enriches their whole way of presenting what these mitzvahs are. Yeah. To, to, to up-and-coming wives. A hundred percent. I know for me personally, when I know the deeper reasons behind any Jewish observance, it adds so much more meaning and, and depth to it. And I feel inspired to do it more because I really, I'm just connecting to it in a whole different way. So that's Spirit of the Law. Spirit of the Law is a component of the curriculum for Shiviti that should never be budged. It right. always is going to be there, Mitzvah because, and, and maybe I'll go back and do certain things over again for new cohorts of students, or maybe it'll always be ever refined and ever added to, I don't know. Yeah. But it's endless. It's endless. That, yeah, it's endless. It really is. I haven't given up on educating educators. Mm. Like, college teachers, that's a way of keeping, a, of building a new component of the program that's, that's kind of standalone. But it's, um, but it it uh, is already focused on those who are going to be educators or already educators, and it's going to be stratified, meaning those who already have certification as being kala educators, so they don't have to do the part of the program that is focused on halacha mm. unless they want to. They can do only the classes that are focused on premiums. That's so nice. You know, so that we can have an entry point for those who already, they don't have to get, it's not a new process. Of right, they don't have to start over. They don't have to start over again. Right. But, um, no, we're in conversation with a university in the United States to start a master's program in, in education and leadership. So that's like something that's huge. that we're in discussions about. And because I got sick, uh, like college teachers program is supposed to start after circuits. Wow. And... Because I was sick all through the summer, Aye. so everything got pushed off a little bit. But okay, but it's it's um, it's part of the bigger picture. I have not given up on not at all on educating educators, and I think that um, incorporating it with a master's program is very important because nowadays, if you're going into education, you do need, you know, it's it's you, you do need a master's to really. Yeah. Um, get to where you need to go and the problem with the current um, masters of education that are available specifically uh, for Jewish education is that there's actually very little Jewish education in it 
Mm. It's mostly about education in it's general. It's mostly and, pedagogical, but it's right. not. So, so that's it's, it. Can be. It's there's a lot that's beneficial, but um, but I have loads of students who graduated out of very good MED programs that did not give them proper tools for actually teaching Kodesh in a deep way. Mm. Or really, in a, it's lacking, you know? So, Yavne in Europe, the place where I went to school existed in Europe before the war. They were a four-year program. Wow. They, it, was a, like a, it was going to college, and it was, a, it was a, um, a very diverse program, and you had to also learn how to teach secular subjects. Wow. It was, it was quite, a, quite a rigorous um, pathway. Wow. So it's not, I'm not trying to recreate that or anything, but I just feel like in the, in the more, let's say in the more Haredi environments, so the expectations on what teachers are bringing into the classroom are too low mm-hmm. in terms of professionalism and also, um, I would say also mastery in Kodesh. You know, there's only so much that you get out of a year of, of STEM. Right. And even a good STEM. And then, um, and then outside of that realm, in the day school world, so there's not enough focus in the educational path on bringing neshama into the classroom. Right. Like, it's out of balance. I agree. So... Not that my opinion really matters, but I didn't no, even no, go no. to this day school, but... That, it's, this is something that's understood yeah. in the world of Jewish education to be... Um, it's, it's a problem. It's a problem. So I like solutions. I'm interested in solutions. That's very that's very exciting. I look forward to that, and uh, hopefully more trips to to Uman also. <laughs> I also more trips in Eretz Yisrael. Yeah, I in Eretz Yisrael. I wanted to go out for the olive harvest with everybody. Yeah, I would love trips around <laughs> Israel. So but special. Yeah, Did you come with us when we went camping last time? No. We're gonna do more. I, I now that I'm feeling better. I would love that. Okay. Um, okay, so, okay, if you have a, a, a last idea to uh, to leave us with, that would be great. So, yeah, we have um, in the class that I teach on Monday nights, that, that Talmud class, the Talmudic narrative class, Agadita. So we're, we came across this idea of um, the angels don't understand Aramaic. <laughs> right, it sounds a little funny, right? Yeah. The angels don't understand Aramaic, so that's why halakhically it has implications of not incorporating Aramaic into certain prayers. And um, individually, you're not allowed to use as an individual. You're not supposed to use the language of Aramaic mm. if you're in a if you're in a minion. So then, certain prayers are in Aramaic, and it's so so the the whole concept of the angels don't understand Aramaic. Why doesn't say that that the angels don't understand that they're in Aramaic, but it says that they're not mikirim, that they don't recognize it, which is kind of a funny term to use, right? Because lakir also means to acknowledge, right? Or you know. So there's a lot of there's a lot of different ways of understanding it. The commentators have all different kinds of explanations of what this is about. Um, the one I liked the best, the one that spoke to me the deepest, it's kind of a combination of Rav Tzadok and the Ben Ishchai and Rabbi Nachman's teaching on Aramaic, but it's like, it's not that they don't know it, it's that they don't like it. Mm. Meaning they don't want to know it. They don't approve of it. Mm. So they pretend like, I don't know about pretend, but they make as if they, the prayers in Aramaic, they're not going to bring them up on high because they're, they don't like those, they don't like that language. And why should they pick out Aramaic? You know, out of all the languages in the world, how come they don't like Aramaic? Quite the contrary. Aramaic is like a bridge between Hebrew and other languages. It's on the it's on the cusp. You know, mm. Aramaic is such a special language. Aramaic, when we have Targum, right? We use a, the Aramaic translation. Right. It's kind of like a medrash. There's two different Targumim, but they're, they're, it's very deep, very, very powerful. And you often find insight into Hebrew words via their Aramaic Targum, via their Aramaic translation. So, you know, I always think of it like a single coin. The words are like a coin with one side Hebrew, one side Aramaic. Mm. You know? It's not always so, but you learn so much about the depth of Lishon HaKodesh, of Hebrew, through proper examination of the Aramaic. Mm. So, 
why were the angels not like Aramaic? So the Benishchai and others bring this idea that they don't like it, they don't recognize it, and they won't bring those prayers on high, whatever that means. They won't uh, be involved in the upward movement of prayer in Aramaic, or at least in the individual's Aramaic, because, because the essence of Aramaic they don't approve of, which is that it's a bridge between the Shon HaKodesh and the rest of the languages of the world. It's on the cusp of holiness. Rabbi Nachman calls it Shlemut Lashon HaKodesh. It's the completion of Lashon HaKodesh, mm. of, of the Holy Tongue. It's, the, it's a bridge between that which is holy and the realm where it's not holy. And then you have this bridge between them that translates holy to the play, out to the place that is mundane. Mm. And angels don't like that because they're black and white. They're very, very, they're very zealous. They're very, they're perfectionists, you know? Mm. And they didn't want humanity to be created. They wanted to keep holy in the realm of holy. They exactly. didn't want to bring, bring it, bring it down. Says the angels objected to the creation of man. The angels objected to Moshe bringing the Torah down into the world. The angels object to the state of human imperfection. So they don't like that there is a bridge between holiness wow. and the mundane. Wow. And, and as Jews, right, our whole thing is about <laughs> navigating and negotiating through this bridge, this area of the bridge between holiness and the mundane. Right. The Benishchai adds, based on the teaching of the Arizal, he said, our holiest, holiest book, like the, the Zohar Kodesh, right? And, and the teachings... We have, they're, they're in Aramaic. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai taught his teaching specifically in Aramaic. Our wow. whole Talmud is in Aramaic. Not only because it was the common language, but because it's, it's he said, through using specifically that language, you, you conquer all of the negativity spiritually that's in the world of the mundane. Wow. So it's, it's no surprise that for most of our history, right, the Jewish people spoke the language that we spoke for the longest as our common language was Aramaic. Wow. It was never Lashon HaKodesh. So interesting. I never knew that. Oh, the period that we spoke Hebrew exclusively was very short because that's really the language, that's a sacred language. Mm. And the common language, right, that's called the, the world of the mundane. Right. Is it goes in via Aramaic. Wow. So it's called Shlemut Lashon HaKodesh. That's mm. the completion because it's not enough that the holy stays in the realm of the holy. The holy has to bleed out and cross that bridge to get all the way into the realm of the mundane. And the angels don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> that's so they don't cool. like it. That's such a cool idea. I that's never heard that. Perfectly human. That's a, but Aramaic is a, it's, it's a human endeavor. Mm. It's where the work lies of elevating the world. Yeah. Yehudas, thank you so much. This was My so pleasure. special. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, give us a rating, a review, and of course, share with your family and friends. Be blessed.